Route 66. Today we are journey through the Bible from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. We are cruising through these 66 books, one book each Sunday. And this morning we are ready to study the 16th book, Nehemiah. Let's just dive in, beginning with the structure. How does the book of Nehemiah fit into the Old Testament itself? Well, as we've noted throughout this Route 66 series, the Old Testament consists of three major sections, 17 historical books, the five books of the Law of Moses or Torah, plus the 12 books of history, five poetical books, and 17 prophetical books, the five major and 12 minor prophets, 39 Old Testament books in total. Chronologically, Only 11 of those books actually move the storyline forward in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah is the last one of those 11 books. The rest of the Old Testament books, including five of the historical books, all of the poetical and the prophetical books, all fit in to the storyline of those 11 books. So what's the structure of the book of Nehemiah itself? As we discovered in the video at the beginning of today's lesson, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew title is Nehemiah, next slide, which translated into English means comfort of Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? He had a great name. The book is named after its chief character, Nehemiah, whose name appears in the very first verse. At the beginning of the book it says, the words of Nehemiah. A contemporary of Ezra and cupbearer to the Persian king, Artaxerxes, Nehemiah led the third and the last group of Jews back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Now, according to the Jewish Talmud, the author of the book of Nehemiah, actually Ezra and Nehemiah, is Ezra the priest. Clearly, much of the book of Nehemiah comes from Nehemiah's own personal memoirs. The reporting is remarkably vivid and candid. In fact, some portions are identified literally as the words of Nehemiah, and they are in the first person. Other portions are attributed to Ezra. The most likely explanation is that Ezra actually compiled the entire book, some from his own personal experiences, the rest from Nehemiah's experiences as journaled in Nehemiah's own diaries. Ezra probably completed the book of Nehemiah no later than 423 B.C., the last year of King Artaxerxes' reign as king of Persia. His last words are recorded in Nehemiah 13, verse 31. Remember me with favor, my God. Now, don't miss this. Chronologically speaking, these are the last words recorded in the entire Old Testament. Because after Ezra wrote these words of Nehemiah, after he finishes the book of Nehemiah, there is from that point a 400 plus year period of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the next recorded event in the Bible will be the birth of John the Baptist, followed of course by the birth of the Messiah, Jesus himself. Now with that overall structure in mind then, let's move on to the story. Once again, we're indebted to the Bible Project for their excellent overview of the storyline of Nehemiah in the video clip that we watched to begin today's lesson. And as usual, I have reproduced the entire Ezra-Nehemiah chart across the inside pages of your lesson notes for your own further study at home. Now the book of Nehemiah divides itself very naturally into two distinct sections. 
<laughs> the first is we could call the reconstruction of the wall. The reconstruction of the wall. Chapters 1 through 7 tell the amazing story of Nehemiah's leadership in overseeing the reconstruction of the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Now, 94 years after Zerubbabel led the first remnant, 13 years after Ezra led the second remnant, in 444 BC, Nehemiah led the third remnant of the Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem. Now, earlier... I asked you to open your Bible with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. So follow along now as we read a few verses. We'll pick it up with verse 11 and go through the end of the chapter. Nehemiah 2 verse 11. He's talking again in the first person. I went to Jerusalem, Nehemiah says, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal gate, well, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. It's a mess. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. You're going to remember those three names. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These three openly oppose Nehemiah and the Jews as they attempt to rebuild. Here's just a sampling of their mockery. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. (laughs) And yet Nehemiah and the people just kept right on rebuilding. And so Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem stepped up their opposition. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Also our enemies said before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Yeah, great guys, aren't they? (laughs) Nehemiah overcomes the threats of force by putting half of the people on military watch and the other half of the people on the construction And while this external opposition continues to mount, internal opposition 
also surfaces. First, the morale of the people sinks to a point of despair. Nehemiah 4 and verse 10 tells us, Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. We just can't do it. And then second, the wealthier Jews began to abuse and oppress their fellow Jews by forcing them to mortgage their land and houses and even to sell their children into slavery to them. Good people. Yet in spite of all this deceit and slander and treachery, Nehemiah continues to trust God and press on with a singleness of mind until the work is completed. And Nehemiah 6 and verse 15 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Only 52 days. And Nehemiah 6 and verse 16 tells us, When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Don't miss that last phrase. They realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. It was a God thing that happened. The reconstruction of the wall. Which brings us to the second section of the book, and that is, we could call the restoration of the people. With the reconstruction of the wall completed, chapters 8 through 13, the balance of the book, focus on the consecration and consolidation of the people. Ezra, the priest, is the leader of the spiritual revival in Nehemiah chapters 8 through 10, reminiscent of the very reforms that he also led 13 years earlier as recorded in Ezra. Chapters 9 and 10. It all begins with the public reading of the law of Moses, followed by a time of weeping, repentance, and confession, and a renewal of their devotion to the covenant, which they did actually in writing, we're told, led by Nehemiah, the Levites, and the priests. And Nehemiah 10, verses 28 and 29 records, all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Well, chapters 11 and 12 tell us how lots are drawn to determine the one-tenth of the people who will remain in Jerusalem and the nine-tenths who are free to return to the cities of their inheritance throughout the province of Judah. The walls of Jerusalem are joyfully dedicated. Chapter 13 tells us that Nehemiah actually returned for a short time back to Babylon. Now I say a short time because no sooner had Nehemiah left Jerusalem than the Jews broke all of the covenant renewal and he was actually forced to return to Jerusalem a second time in order to cleanse the temple and to enforce the Sabbath and to rebuke the people for intermarrying with pagan forms who still live throughout the province of Judah. Kind of ends on a down note. But it's about the restoration of the people. So we have the reconstruction of the wall and the restoration of the people. That's the story of Nehemiah, which brings us then to the Savior. 
Each Sunday as we focus on one of these 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities is to point out where and how Jesus is to be found in the narrative of that book. Now please remember that there's one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread, if you will, that runs throughout all of Scripture, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so here in Nehemiah, we want to stop and look and listen for the Savior. Where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of Nehemiah? Well, actually, there is a significant marker for the coming Messiah in Nehemiah 2 and verse 1. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And you go, what? The text continues after that, by the way, to tell the story of Nehemiah making his request and Artaxerxes issuing a decree that allowed Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So why is that such a significant marker for the coming Messiah? Because this decree from Artaxerxes marks the beginning point of Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's Artaxerxes' decree, okay? Until the anointed one, the ruler, the Messiah, Jesus, comes... There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. Now, in prophetic language, the sevens are years. So, let's do the math. Seven sevens is 49 years. Sixty-two sevens is 434 years. 49 plus 434, 483 years total. So, doing the math... This prophecy of Daniel is that 483 years after King Artaxerxes issues this decree that allows Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah, the Anointed One, will be put to death, the prophecy says. Simply put, 483 years after Artaxerxes gave permission for Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, Jesus Christ, the Savior, would be crucified. And guess what? 483 years later, in A.D. 33, precisely and exactly this prophecy came to fulfillment. Is that amazing? Wow. I'll just let you think about that one. (laughs) Which brings us to our final main point today, and that's the sense. As we wrap up every lesson, I want to offer the sense of each of the books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our daily lives from the book? In today's case, what instructions, what applications can we glean from the book of Nehemiah? Now, if you've read through this book, Nehemiah, and I hope that you have, the chapter that you probably skimmed, the chapter that you skipped, let's be honest, is chapter 3. I mean, after all, what could we possibly gain by studying that so-and-so rebuilt the wall next to what's-his-name who worked on the gate next to (laughs) you-know-who? Well, we're going to go against the flow today. 
We're going to buck the trend. Instead of treating this chapter, chapter 3, with a mere glance, treating it like a dry and boring account of rebuilding the wall, we're actually going to draw three practical take-home lessons from these 32 verses. Now, we won't take the time to read through these verses because, after all, I would just butcher the names. Instead, I want to cover this chapter by zeroing in on three important principles. The question is, how do we accomplish a mission impossible for God? Because that's what this is, you do understand. What business did Nehemiah or any of these people have rebuilding the wall? You talk about a mission impossible, they were still in exile. They were rebellious and sinful and disorganized. They were a thorn in everybody's side, including God's. They didn't have any resources to do any of this. It was a mission impossible for God. So, but they did it. How do we accomplish a mission impossible for God? The answer is it requires at least these three things as modeled for us by Nehemiah. The first is coordination. Coordination. If we were to read chapter 3 together, there would be a few phrases that would immediately capture our attention. Phrases like, next to him, next to them, beyond him, beyond them. As a matter of fact, we would run across those kinds of phrases 28 times in chapter 3. Now, with those phrases in mind, I want to point out something. Take a look at the map. It's probably easier to see in your notes than it is up here in the monitors. But if we were to start at the 12 o'clock position, upper middle of the north wall, as we read our way through Nehemiah, we would notice that Nehemiah works his way around the walls in a counterclockwise direction. What's the point? Coordination. It takes coordination to accomplish a mission impossible for God. Nehemiah coordinated these rebuilding efforts with incredible wisdom. First of all, assignments were made by residents. You'll find in the text here words like opposite his house, verse 10, or in front of their house, verse 23. Each in front of his own house, verse 28. Opposite his house, verse 29. Opposite his living quarters, verse 30. What was Nehemiah doing there? He was assigning the rebuilding of the wall by where people lived. You see, back in that day, the the residences were often attached to the wall. That one of the walls of your residence, or at least your courtyard, would be also the wall of the city. And so Nehemiah organized these people. He coordinated the efforts by saying, you build the wall right next to your house. And of course, people went, yeah, I can go for that. I'm building my own house. I've, I've got a vested interest in that. Then secondly, assignments were made to commuters. The men of Jericho, verse 2. The men of Tekoa, verse 5. Men from Gibeon and Mizpah, verse 7. And on and on it goes. These commuters from outside of Jerusalem were assigned to sections of the wall where very few, if any, residences were. And so he assigned those commuters who lived in the suburbs of Jerusalem, if you will, to repair sections of the wall where there were no residences. Again... Pretty smart. Coordination. And then finally, assignments were made by vocation. Verse 1 tells us the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep 
gate. Now, why would they have any interest in the sheep gate? Because that's the gate where the sacrificial lambs were brought into the temple for their sacrifice. And of course, the high priest and the priest would have interest in that gate. That's their gate. And then verse 29 says, the guard at the eastern gate made repairs. By the way, that was the gate through which the soldiers, the guards, entered and exited the city. And so it was their gate. They rebuilt their own gate. I mean, it was pretty smart here. Coordination. The reconstruction of the wall was anything, you see, but haphazard. It was not an accident. Nehemiah carefully and prayerfully coordinated the people and all of their efforts. And likewise, we here at Springville Naz, if we are to accomplish a mission impossible for God, it's going to take coordination. Now let me pause here for just a minute. I believe God has called us to a mission impossible. And that mission impossible is to reach Springville and the foothills. All those who are lost, all of those prodigals who have wandered away and know better, God has called us to reach our community, our area here for Him. And you might think, well, we're just a little church. That's pretty impossible to do. Exactly. (laughs) Which is why we need to learn from Nehemiah. How can we tackle this impossible mission that God has put before us? One of the ways we can tackle it is by coordination. And I believe that God has called me to be the coordinator of the team. Okay? Just like He called Nehemiah. I'm not trying to exalt myself in any way. I'm just saying, I think that's the way it works in the church. I think God has assigned pastors and leaders and churches so that They can coordinate how the people work together. (laughs) How we accomplish this mission that God has called us to. We each have an assignment on the wall. And it's so very important that our efforts are coordinated as we're trying to reach our community for Christ. I'll leave it there. So first, the principle of coordination. Second, I see here the principle of cooperation. Cooperation. In his commentary on Nehemiah, Alan Redpath writes, All along the wall the people worked. Their one desire to see it completed. Each group was united in determination to finish the particular task allotted to them. They were not jealous of what somebody else was doing, nor were they concerned about that job or this, for God had given them a portion to do in the rebuilding of the wall. And they set themselves to the task with all might and main. And all those groups were united to each other. How thrilling. They were all conscious of the the next door neighbors and thankful for their cooperation. They were all working as one around that wall. There was no separation. There was no independent spirit because they were one in vision. They were one in purpose. The point is, almost everyone, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, Great or small, almost everyone did his or her part to rebuild the wall. There was an incredible spirit of cooperation going on in this 52-day effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now I say almost everyone because there was one group who did not cooperate. And I appreciate Nehemiah's honesty in pointing this out to us. In verse 5 we read, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Notice that but. The men of Tekoa, 
a community that was about 10 miles to the south of Jerusalem, by the way. They did their share of the work. In fact, they did a double portion. Verse 27 also tells us the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. I mean, they did double duty. But they're nobles. The dignitaries, the city officials, the snobs, they would have no part in the rebuilding work. Why? We don't really know. All we know is they refused to cooperate and they were left out. However, I want to focus on the positive because everyone else did cooperate. And if you read through the chapter... Just take note of the different kinds of people who rolled up their sleeves and got the work done. There were rulers. They're mentioned eight times. Rulers. Priests and goldsmiths and perfume makers and temple servants and merchants. There were even musicians who are sometimes seen as soft. But Rehum was a temple musician. He's mentioned in verse 17. And we learn a little later in chapter 11, verse 22, that he was a musician. Families worked on the wall together. I love verse 12. Shalom repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. There you go, Jesse. All right. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. That's cool. Even singles. Verse 30. Meshalom made repairs opposite his living quarters, which we would say in today's vernacular, his studio apartment. He was a single, you see. But he pitched in right alongside everyone else. All kinds of people from every walk of life work together to rebuild the wall. Cooperation. And likewise, if we, Springville Nazar, are to accomplish a mission impossible for God, it is going to take cooperation. We are going to have to work alongside one another and we're not to be concerned with, well, I really want her job. Golly, I really wish I was in the limelight. No! We've each been called along the wall to do our part. We all have different shapes, spiritual gifts and heart and abilities and personality and experiences that God shapes us with. And we each are called to do what God has called us to do. And we need to cooperate arm in arm and hand in hand with each other. We are a team and we are doing this together. Uh, I won't say more. Second, the principle of cooperation. Number three... I see here the principle of commendation. Commendation. Nehemiah practiced the principle of commendation. He was a leader. And as a leader, he was an encourager, a cheerleader to the workers on the wall. He recognized and praised these laborers for their efforts. Did you realize there are 75 individuals that are named in 32 verses in this chapter? I don't know a single one of them. Nor do you. But I'll tell you this. God knows them. And they knew each other. And Nehemiah knew them. And he recorded them in this passage of Scripture here for us and preserved for all time, for eternity, these 75 names. Oh! That's significant. There's also 15 groups of people mentioned in this chapter. We've already mentioned some of them. Priests and goldsmiths and merchants and so on. 
There's one person who is given special commendation in verse 20. Baruch, son of Zabbi, zealously repaired another section. I like that. (laughs) Nehemiah points him out. Why? Because he zealously, he evidently went beyond just the normal duty everybody else did. He, this guy put in his time and he put in extra effort and he zealously repaired an, uh, another section of the wall and he gets a pat on the back and his zealousness is recorded for all time for us. Commendation. Likewise, if we, Springville Naz, are to accomplish a mission impossible for God, it's going to take some commendation. We're going to pause from time to time and we're going to say thank you. Especially those who zealously do what God has called them to do. We haven't done a lot of that here. We did it this morning. Thank you, Norma, for pointing out again Dennis and Sherry and all those who help with our upfront ministries and just kind of patting them on the back a little bit there. But but we need to do that a little more often, I think. And I've been kind of negligent at doing that, and, and I apologize for that. But we're going to start doing it a little bit more in the future. Because I, I, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I, I do think we all need encouragement. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think that commendation is one of the principles that Nehemiah and God used in helping to accomplish this impossible mission. And if we are going to reach this community for Jesus Christ, if we're going to do the impossible mission that God has called us as a church to do, uh, we're going to commend people for that from time to time. We're going to pat them on the back. We're going to call them out and say, way to go. Yay. And give them a round of applause. Because of your good efforts and the work that we are called to do. So third, we see the principle of commendation. The question is, how do we accomplish a mission impossible for God? And the answer is, it requires at least these three things as modeled by Nehemiah. Coordination, cooperation, and commendation. Now, look up here for a minute. Like Nehemiah said to these exiled Jews who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, he said to them, let us rise up and build. And I'm going to say to you this morning, let us rise up and build. And the people responded, let's start building. And as we do that, we're going to do it with coordination and we are going to do it with cooperation. And yes, we are going to do it with commendation. Because God has called us to an impossible mission but we will accomplish what He has called us to do by the grace of God. Let's do it. Route 66. We're cruising through the 66 books of the Bible. Today we focused on the book of Nehemiah, the structure, the story, the Savior, and the sense. We'll continue our journey next Sunday with the book of Esther. What a marvelous book. If you've never read the story of Esther, I encourage you to take the time. If you read a chapter and a half a day, you'll read through all ten chapters before we get together next Sunday. And we talk about this beautiful story of a woman who was a queen in a foreign land and put her life on the line for all her people. Amazing story. So, read through it before we get together, okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for what we've learned this morning. Thank You for Your Word and how it teaches us practical things. 
I just feel like You are calling us to do more than what we are now doing. You are calling us to a task that's bigger than we are. You are calling us to a mission impossible. And we may look at all the rubble, we may look at all the stuff around us in our world today, and we might be discouraged and we might think, there's no way we could possibly ever accomplish what you're asking us to do, O God. And I just want to denounce that negative thinking right now. If you have called us to do this, then you will give us the resources, the ability to get it done. So would you coordinate us as we cooperate together? And God, there are a number of people among us who need some commendation for all the hard work they put in. They are zealously doing the work you've called them to do. Help even more of us to step up and to put our time and our efforts into what you've called us to reach this community. I pray that the lost would come to know you in this city. I cry out for their salvation. They're going to hell. And God, we need to reach them. There are many prodigals who at one time maybe knew you and now they're not walking with you at all who need to come home. I pray God that you would woo them and that we would do our part to encourage them to come. Do the impossible through us because you are the God of will by your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.